Chapter thirty six of Uncle Silas by Joseph Sheridan Le Fanu. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter thirty six An Arrival at Dead of Night. I have sometimes been asked why I wear an odd little turquoise ring, which to the uninstructed eye appears quite valueless and altogether an unworthy companion of those jewels which flash insultingly beside it it is a little keepsake of which i became possessed about this time come lass what name shall i give you cried milly one morning bursting into my room in a state of alarming hilarity my own milly no but you must have a nickname like every one else don't mind it milly yes but i will shall i call you mrs bustle you shall do no such thing but you must have a name i refuse a name but i'll give you one lass and i won't have it but you can't help me christening you i can decline answering but i'll make you said milly growing very red perhaps there was something provoking in my tone for i certainly was very much disgusted at milly's relapse into barbarism you can't i retorted quietly see if i don't and i'll give ye one twice as ugly i smiled i fear disdainfully and i think you're a minx and a slut and a fool she broke out flushing scarlet i smiled in the same unchristian way and i'll give ye a smack of the cheek as soon as look at you and she gave her dress a great slap and drew near me in her wrath i really thought she was about tendering the ordeal of single combat i made her however a paralyzing curtsey and with immense dignity sailed out of the room and into uncle silas's study where it happened we were to breakfast that morning and for several subsequent ones during the meal we maintained the most dignified reserve and i don't think either so much as looked at the other we had no walk together that day i was sitting in the evening quite alone when milly entered the room her eyes were red and she looked very sullen i want your hand cousin she said at the same time taking it by the wrist and administering with it a sudden slap on her plump cheek which made the room ring and my fingers tingle and before i had recovered from my surprise she had vanished i called after her but no answer I pursued but she was running too and i quite lost her at the cross galleries i did not see her at tea nor before going to bed but after i had fallen asleep i was awakened by milly in floods of tears cousin maud will ye forgive me you'll never like me again will ye no i know you won't i'm such a brute i hate it it's a shame and here's a banbury cake for you i sent to the town for it and some taffy won't ye eat it and here's a little ring tisn't as pretty as your own rings and ye'll wear it maybe for my sake poor milly's sake before i was so bad to ye if ye forgive me and i'll look at breakfast and if it's on your finger i'll know you're friends with me again and if you don't i won't trouble you no more and i think i'll just drown myself out of the way and you'll never see wicked milly no more and without waiting a moment leaving me only half awake and with the sensations of dreaming she scampered from the room in her bare feet 
with a petticoat about her shoulders she had left her candle by my bed and her little offerings on the coverlet by me if i had stood an atom less in terror of goblins than i did i should have followed her but i was afraid i stood in my bare feet at my bedside and kissed the poor little ring and put it on my finger where it has remained ever since and always shall and when i lay down longing for morning the image of her pale imploring penitential face was before me for hours and i repented bitterly of my cool provoking ways and thought myself i dare say justly a thousand times more to blame than milly i searched in vain for her before breakfast at that meal however we met but in the presence of uncle silas who though silent and apathetic was formidable and we sitting at a table disproportionately large under the cold strange gaze of my guardian talked only what was inevitable and that in low tones for whenever milly for a moment raised her voice uncle silas would wince place his thin white fingers quickly over his ear and look as if a pain had pierced his brain and then shrug and smile piteously into vacancy when uncle silas therefore was not in the talking vein himself and that was not often you may suppose there was very little spoken in his presence when milly across the table saw the ring upon my finger she drawing in her breath said oh and with round eyes and mouth she looked so delighted and she made a little motion as if she was on the point of jumping up and then her poor face quivered and she bit her lip and staring imploringly at me her eyes filled fast with tears which rolled down her round penitential cheeks i am sure i felt more penitent than she i know i was crying and smiling and longing to kiss her i suppose we were very absurd but it is well that small matters can stir the affection so profoundly at a time of life when great troubles seldom approach us when at length the opportunity did come never was such a hug out of the wrestling ring as poor milly bestowed on me swaying me this way and that and burying her face in my dress and blubbering i was so lonely before you came and you so good to me and i such a devil and i'll never call you a name but maud my darling maud you must milly mrs bustle i'll be mrs bustle or anything you like you must i was blubbering like milly and hugging my best and indeed i wonder how we kept our feet so milly and i were better friends than ever meanwhile the winter deepened and we had short days and long nights and long fireside gossipings at bartram howe i was frightened at the frequency of the strange collapses to which uncle silas was subject i did not at first mind them much for i naturally fell into milly's way of talking about them but one day while in one of his queerish states he called for me and i saw him and was unspeakably scared in a white wrapper he lay coiled in a great easy-chair i should have thought him dead had i not been accompanied by old lamour who knew every gradation and symptom of these strange affections she winked and nodded to me with a ghastly significance and whispered don't make no noise miss till he talks he'll come to for a bit anon except that there was no sign of convulsions the countenance was like that of an epileptic arrested in one of his contortions 
there is a frown and smirk like that of idiocy and a strip of white eyeball was also disclosed suddenly with a kind of chilly shudder he opened his eyes wide and screwed his lips together and blinked and stared on me with a fatuized uncertainty that gradually broke into a feeble smile ah the girl austin's child well dear i'm hardly able i'll speak to-morrow next day it is tick neuralgia or something torture tell her so huddling himself together he lay again in his great chair with the same inexpressible helplessness in his attitude and gradually his face resumed its dreadful cast come away miss he's changed his mind he'll not be fit to talk to you no ways all day maybe said the old woman again in a whisper so forth we stole from the room i unspeakably shocked in fact he looked as if he were dying and so in my agitation i told the crone who forgetting the ceremony with which she usually treated me chuckled out derisively a dying is he well he be like saint paul he's been a dying daily this many a day i looked at her with a chill of horror she did not care i suppose what sort of feelings she might excite for she went on mumbling sarcastically to herself i had paused and overcame my reluctance to speak to her again for i was really very much frightened do you think he is in danger shall we send for a doctor i whispered lord bless she the doctor knows all about it miss the old woman's face had a gleam of that derision which is so shocking in the features of feebleness and age but it is a fit it is paralytic or something horrible it can't be safe to leave him to chance or nature to get through these terrible attacks there's no fear of him tisn't no fits at all he's nowt the worse at jist silly a bit now and again he's been the same a dozen year or more and the doctor knows all about it answered the old woman sturdily and you'll find he'll be as mad as bedlam if you make any stir about it that night i talked the matter over with mary quince they're very dark miss but i think he takes a deal too much laudlum said mary to this hour i cannot say what was the nature of those periodical seizures i have often spoken to medical men about them since but never could learn that excessive use of opium could altogether account for them it was i believe certain however that he did use that drug in startling quantities it was indeed sometimes a topic of complaint with him that his neuralgia imposed this sad necessity upon him the image of uncle silas as i had seen him that day troubled and affrighted my imagination as i lay in my bed i had slept very well since my arrival at bartram so much of the day was passed in the open air and in active exercise that this was but natural but that night i was nervous and wakeful and it was past two o'clock when i fancied i heard the sound of horses and carriage wheels on the avenue mary quince was close by and therefore i was not afraid to get up and peep from the window my heart beat fast as i saw a post-chaise approach the courtyard the front window was let down and the postilion pulled up for a few seconds in consequence of some directions received by him i fancied he resumed his route at a walk and so drew up at the hall door 
on the steps of which a figure awaited his arrival. I think it was old Lamour, but I could not be quite certain. There was a lantern on the top of the balustrade, close by the door. The chaise lamps were lighted, for the night was rather dark. A bag and valise, as well as I could see, were pulled from the interior by the postboy, and a box from the top of the vehicle, and these were carried into the hall. I was obliged to keep my cheek against the window-pane to command a view of the point of debarkation, and my breath upon the glass, which dimmed it again almost as fast as I wiped it away, helped to obscure my vision. But I saw a tall figure in a cloak get down, and swiftly enter the house, but whether male or female I could not discern. My heart beat fast. I jumped at once to a conclusion. My uncle was worse, was, in fact, dying, and this was the physician, too late summoned to his bedside. I listened for the assent of the doctor, and his entrance at my uncle's door, which, in the stillness of the night, I thought I might easily hear, but no sound reached me. I listened so for fully five minutes, but without result. I returned to the window, but the carriage and horses had disappeared. I was strongly tempted to wake Mary Quince and take counsel with her, and persuade her to undertake a reconnaissance. The fact is, I was persuaded that my uncle was in extremity, and I was quite wild to know the doctor's opinion. But, after all, it would be cruel to summon the good soul from her refreshing nap. So, as I began to feel very cold, I returned to my bed, where I continued to listen and conjecture until I fell asleep. In the morning, as was usual, before I was dressed, in came Milly. "'How is Uncle Silas?' I eagerly inquired. "'Old Lamour says he's queerish still, but he's not so dull as yesterday,' answered she. "'Was not the doctor sent for?' I asked. "'Was he? Well, that's odd.' "'And she never said a word of it to me,' answered she. "'I'm asking only,' said I. "'I don't know whether he came or no,' she replied. "'But what makes you take that in your head?' "'A chaise arrived here between two and three o'clock last night.' "'Hey, and who told you?' Milly seemed all on a sudden highly interested. "'I saw it, Milly, and someone, I fancy the doctor, came from it into the house.' "'Fudge, lass, who'd send for the doctor? "'Twasn't he, I tell you. "'What was he like?' said Milly. "'I could only see clearly that he, or she, "'was tall and wore a cloak,' I replied. "'Then twasn't him, nor t'other I was thinking on neither, "'and I'll be hanged, but I think it will be Cormoran,' cried Milly, "'with a thoughtful rap with her knuckle on the table. "'Precisely at this juncture a tapping came to the door. "'Come in,' said I and old Lamour entered the room with a curtsy. "'I came to tell Miss Quince her breakfast's ready,' said the old lady. "'Who came in the chaise, Lamour? demanded Milly. "'What chaise?' spluttered the bell-dame tartly. "'The chaise that came last night, past two o'clock,' said Milly. "'That's a lie, and a damned lie,' cried the bell-dame. "'There won't no chaise at the door since Miss Maud there come from Knoll.' I stared at the audacious old menial who could utter such language. "'Yes, there was a chaise, and Cormoran, as I think, be come in it,' said Milly, who seemed accustomed to Lamour's daring address. "'And there's another damn lie as big as t'other,' said the crone, 
her haggard and withered face flushing orange all over. "'I beg you will not use such language in my room,' I replied very angrily. "'I saw the chaise at the door. Your untruth signifies very little, but your impertinence here I will not permit. Should it be repeated, I will assuredly complain to my uncle.' The woman flushed more fiercely as I spoke, and fixed her bleared glare on me, with a compression of her mouth that amounted to a wicked grimace. She resisted her angry impulse, however, and only chuckled a little spitefully, saying, "'No offence, miss, it be a way we has in Derbyshire of speaking our minds. No offence, miss, were meant, and none took as I hopes.' And she made me another curtsey. "'And I forgot to tell you, Miss Milly, the master wants you this minute.' So Milly, in mute haste, withdrew, followed closely by Lamour. End of chapter 36